Microbial Nation, welcome to another episode of the Micro Moment, that show that brings you down to the microscopic level just to see the world a little bit differently. Today, I would like to welcome Sarah R. Bornstein to the show. She's received her master's at Tennessee State University and is currently working as an associate research professor at Pennsylvania State University as a co-lead at the Bornstein Lab. She is also the director of the Wolbachia Project which focuses on developing curriculum to teach high schoolers, college students, and civilian scientists through the real-world research, data collection, DNA extraction, and amplification, sequencing, and more. Thank you for coming on to the show. Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me. So, first off, could you tell us about your microbial journey? What got you interested in the world of microbiology? Sure. So, I was initially drawn to viruses, actually, in the context of infectious disease. You know, as a teenager, I loved books like The Hot Zone and The Coming Plague, and I really couldn't get enough. And I was really curious about the impact of viruses on human health and history. So, you know, how can this invisible virus wreak so much havoc on our bodies? But then from another perspective, how could humanity exist in the presence of such deadly entities, right? So no surprise that I loved undergrad uh, virology, but then on, I went to learn more about microbial ecology, phages, and microbial eukaryotes, and that really caught me. I'd have to say, for me, you know, we all grew up with viruses, but what didn't hit me until undergrad was realizing that there are viruses for specifically bacteria. That's something you never hear about. Right, exactly. And, I, you know, I remember in high school kind of studying about just textbook, how they discovered a phage, which I thought was pretty boring, to be honest. But then when you <laughs> actually jump into it and learn about, you know, this whole system of viruses within microbes, within animals, uh, it's really fascinating. You wouldn't expect something to be so complex from something so small. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So you were originally a research associate that became a lab manager, then a senior research specialist before becoming an associate research professor. To those that are interested in going into the field of microbiology, how would you say that these positions helped or prepared you for where you are now? You know, I, I think it's really important to also mention that prior to those roles, I was also a straight out of college research assistant then somehow a high school teacher, then I combined the worlds of curriculum and outreach. And, you know, I really wish I could say that I had some groundbreaking revelation in an early age that this is what I want to be. But I think my path has been pretty bumpy. And I've learned that that's, you know, that's not too uncommon to kind of have these twists and turns along the way. But you just have to kind of keep chasing what you're passionate about, find the right environment that works with you and your goals. And to where I am today, it's really this cumulative you know, combination of experiences that have uniquely molded my career today. It's it's not it's not really normal, I guess, a traditional path, but I've been able to merge my interest for research and secondary education into one um, so that I can always keep, you know, one foot uh, in education and one foot in research. So I think you just have to keep moving forward, find something that you're passionate about and keep going. Yeah, one thing I found that was really cool is, you know, uh, some of these positions people generally associate with a PhD and you have your master's and you're able to get these positions. And it's something Tess and I have uh, been discussing a little bit is like some of these positions that were regarded as PhD onlys are not so much anymore. Like it's opening up to other people. But I feel like the field itself is being more open and realizing that it 
experience is better than just say like PhD position. Yeah, I agree. And I think given how much STEM is growing, particularly microbiology and the microbiome sciences, we need to be open. You're really fortunate if you find what you love straight out of the gate, right? And you can get your PhD and go start your lab. For some of us, it doesn't work that way. Um, you know, we we may not really discover our true passion until we try out a few things. But as your experience grows, you really get this interdisciplinary suite of tools that you can then apply to keep growing your career and keep contributing to science in novel ways. So I think all routes, regardless of how you get here, are equally valuable. You just have to keep going and really focus on that that passion that got you here in the first place. Exactly. So I want to talk a little bit about your lab. So the lab you currently co-lead focuses on animal microbe symbiosis, and your work specifically focuses on genome dynamics, horizontal gene transfer, and the life cycle of viruses and plasmids associated with bacteria Wolbachia. Could you tell us what what is the research looking to answer and what kind of work is being done in your lab to find these answers? Oh, yeah. Thank you. That's a great question. So my work focuses on phage woe. So this is a bacteriophage or a bacterial virus that infects Wolbachia. And it initially caught our attention because this phage is only associated with certain types of Wolbachia. It's absent from Wolbachia that are mutualists, like those that are in fact filarial nematodes, but it's overwhelmingly present in Wolbachia that have like a parasitic effect on their host, as in arthropods. So, and by arthropods, I mean insects, spiders, crustaceans, mites, and so on. So therefore we thought, you know, could the phage be driving the success of this bacterial host in the arthropod population? And it sounds like a simple question, but this phage, unlike phages of free living bacteria, is the phage of an endosymbiont, which means it lives within the bacterial cell that is cloaked by these multiple eukaryotic membranes that's within a eukaryotic cell or an animal cell within an animal. And so you can't culture it. You can't do your routine plaque assays. You really have to attack it from a genomics perspective. So thankfully, we have hundreds of Wolbachia genomes, and we're able to do some comparative analyses to study this phage. And I work with this incredible team. So together, I kind of, I guess, scavenge through all of these genomes and find genes that are kind of interesting pertaining to the host that they infect. And then my team will take those genes and put them into Drosophila, which is a fruit fly. And so transgenically, they can express these phage genes inside of a fruit fly to see what the impact is of a bacteriophage on an animal host. And by doing this, we've been able to find some really cool functions that we initially attributed to Wolbachia, but now we see that they're kind of associated with these phage genes where the phage is manipulating, or you know, some people would say it's Wolbachia with prophage genes, is manipulating the reproduction of its animal host. And we can do all of this without even purifying the phage through our transgenic system. So it's, you know, it's really fun, it's really powerful. And I'm, I'm excited to be in this field of phage biology and transgenics. And we're kind of, you really have to look beyond the textbook and come up with a new and novel ways to study this system because it is so difficult. It's really cool. So is this phage, is this uh, one that's 
constantly replicating or is it like dormant, say like the Lambda phage only pops out in times of stress? Exactly. That's good. So again, we don't know tons about its life cycle because it is in, you know, kind of in this endosymbiont, but it is a temperate phage, which means that this, this phage genome will insert into the bacterial genome and it does lay dormant there until at times when it can jump out and uh, replicate itself. We know that it lyses the bacterial membrane and somehow it gets from that Wolbachia cell to other Wolbachia cells within the animal host. Um, We're still kind of trying to figure out how it does that. But I can say that, again, this phage is so cool. It defies all textbooks because when you look at its genome, it's not just your standard, oh, there's a head, capsid tail. It's not your standard phage genome. About half of it is that. But then the other half are these genes that actually have more homology to animals than to bacteria. So you have this phage that is carrying around animal-like genes. And if you think about it, that makes sense because it's in an animal environment, right? It has to contend with the environment within the animal. It has to contend with the immune system. And so how does it, how does it evade all of these uh, challenges? So it's a really funky phage, but I have to say actually about last week, someone um, just published on a similar looking phage from the endosymbiont of a protist. So I think it's just the tip of the iceberg and maybe hopefully one day the textbooks will be rewritten to include <laughs> these types of phages. Yeah, I know um, viruses are particularly hard to study because, you know, they don't grow on their own. You need a cell or a host to grow it in and that makes it all the more difficult and even how you isolate it through, I remember this paper, what, ultracentrification? Like they were finding like some of the supernatant that they were getting rid of actually harbored viruses. So it's it's really hard to study. <laughs> it is really hard to study, especially when the bacteria that it infects is an obligate intracellular endosymbiont, which means you can't culture the bacteria. So not only can you not culture the phage, but you can culture the bacteria. Um, it's a really tricky system. So I just teased that you worked with the bacteria Wolbachia. What is this microbe and how does it affect arthropods? Does it affect them in the same way? Yeah, it actually, so it it affects arthropods differently. And there's many different strains organized currently into supergroups. There's many different supergroups of Wolbachia that infect many different arthropod hosts. Uh, Wolbachia is most closely related to other members of the Rickettsialis, like Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, Rickettsia. It's an alpha proteobacterium. While I tend to focus on the mobile elements, like the phages and the plasmids of Wolbachia, I think everyone else in my field would probably refer you to Wolbachia's superpowers. That's what it's most known for. It induces or it's associated with four reproductive phenotypes in its arthropod host, uh, the first being male killing. So if an arthropod like ladybug, for example, is infected with Wolbachia, the Wolbachia can selectively kill all of the male embryos that the mom lays. And so only females will survive. Um, in other arthropods, like spider mites, it it can induce parthenogenesis, which allows the females to reproduce asexually. So males are no longer needed here. If this insect has, or if this arthropod has Wolbachia, the females can have essentially clones of themselves and keep going on in the population. 
something else interesting that it does, like in pill bugs. So, you know, next time you're out in your backyard and you see those roly polies or pill bugs in your <laughs> sandbox, they could be harboring a Wolbachia that induces feminization. So here, if we look at the genetics of that roly poly, it's going to genetically be a male. However, it can, if it has Wolbachia, a phenotypically uh, develop into a female, like a functional female. Hmm. So these are all really cool ways that Wolbachia can kind of hijack the reproduction of its host. And essentially, it's selecting for more females. And the reason it does that is because Wolbachia is maternally transmitted. So in order for Wolbachia to kind of be successful in that population, it needs females. So it's going to select for females. And unfortunately, in not too good for males, <laughs> but it selects for those females. And then the fourth, the fourth phenotype that it does is cytoplasmic incompatibility. That's really the focus of our lab. And this phenotype is where infected males are not, you know, compatible with uninfected females. So an infected male can only reproduce with another infected female. Otherwise, their offspring will die. And this is pretty cool because it allows Wolbachia to rapidly spread throughout a population because it's selecting for that Wolbachia infection. That's really interesting. So do they know why it needs to pass maternally? Like, is it specifically through the egg that it's passed through? Yes. And it's Wolbachia is enriched in the reproductive tissue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's interesting in CI is that Wolbachia modifies the, so CI is the cytoplasmic incompatibility that I mentioned. Wolbachia can modify the sperm um, through some of these phage genes that I talked about, phage associated genes that I talked about earlier. But Wolbachia modifies the sperm, but it isn't transferred with the sperm. So during reproduction, the Wolbachia is coming from the mom because it's not transferred with the sperm. However, Wolbachia is modifying that sperm such that it needs another infected female to be able to rescue those modifications. Really cool stuff. It's really cool. Um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Agrobacter tumoniferans. It's a bacteria that uh, causes the tumors you see in trees and forces them to create a sugar that they normally don't produce so they can eat themselves. So they're like modifying the behavior of the tree as well. Oh, right. They're manipulating it for their own survival. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of that. So that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, that is. And I got to say something else that, so we're really interested in the biology, right? So like you were saying, like, how do these bacteria manipulate their hosts for their own survival, right? Mm -hmm. But there are field applications. So this other like really cool biology Wolbachia that I didn't talk about is that it can also infer resistance to RNA viruses. So if you combine the ability of Wolbachia to rapidly spread throughout a population, you know, with a strain that that um, inhibits the replication of RNA viruses, imagine if you put that into mosquitoes, you can then replace an entire population of mosquitoes with a Wolbachia strain that inhibits RNA viruses. This is being done around the world, actually. It's called population replacement. And we can essentially, well, not we, but the people doing these <laughs> experiments can essentially eliminate viruses. They can eliminate dengue fever in communities, but they're still keeping that ecosystem intact. So the mosquitoes are still there. You know, mosquitoes, unfortunately, are important to the food web and they are right. public, actually. So they're still there, but they can no longer give us disease. Alternatively, you can then also, if you only wanted to release Wolbachia infected males, remember 
these males can't uh, reproduce with uninfected females. So if you just put out tons and tons of Wolbachian infected males, you can crush a population. And this is being done in areas where these mosquitoes don't belong. You know, thanks to climate change, they're moving north. Mm -hmm. They're impacting the ecosystem and they're a threat to our health. And so in this case, you don't really want to replace them with a Wolbachia, but you can use that Wolbachia to crash them, kind of helping to restore uh, that balance in the ecosystem. This is all through Wolbachia, and um, I would like to think it's probably the phage that's pulling the strings here, but uh, <laughs> that's contested, <laughs> so we will see. That sounds like an interesting idea of uh, attacking invasive species. Yeah, right, and I think there are some groups that are also looking at this for agricultural pests as well. And again, thinking it more in, in terms of like climate change or or things that really don't belong in like the invasive species, they don't really belong in this community and, and they're causing a lot of harm. Um, this is an alternative to pesticides. It's a naturally occurring bacterium. Mm-hmm. So it has a lot of promise. So this brings me to the Wolbachia project, which I had mentioned earlier. Could you go into more detail about it? Oh, yeah. Thanks. So hopefully by now you appreciate why Wolbachia is important, right? Right. <laughs> so- Human health, agriculture, and conservation. But logistically, it is it is not possible for us to begin describing the true biodiversity and frequency of this bacteria because there's over a million named species of insects with millions more left to be discovered. Um, and I'd like to think our students are discovering some of those as we speak. But, you know, with all of these arthropods out there, about half of them have Wolbachia. So what is this Wolbachia doing? How is it contributing to the biology, you know, of the arthropod species? We really don't know that. And we can't begin to conquer that. We really need an army of scientists. And so that's what the Wolbachia project is. So we actually work with teachers to train teachers how to do what we're doing here in the lab so that they can then train their students. The students can ask um, community relevant questions, you know, things that are really of interest to them. Arthropods are everywhere. You know, when I'm working with these students, oftentimes they say, oh, my gosh, where am I going to find an insect? <laughs> you know, But, you know, they're everywhere. And so students can begin to ask questions about arthropods. And then we teach them how to do molecular biology. So DNA extractions, uh, amplification and visualization. And by the end of the experience, they've now not only um, collected and identified arthropods, in their community, but they can report whether or not they have Wolbachia. They can also sequence using DNA barcoding for the insect cytochrome oxidase gene or Wolbachia, the 16S gene. They can sequence that. We'll do the sequencing for them so that they can uh, not only use morphology, but molecular, the DNA sequence to identify their organisms. And they can build phylogenetic trees to look at the evolutionary relationships of both the, you know, the arthropod and the Wolbachia. So it's it's important, I think, you know, for our field to really have more hands, help us learn more about Wolbachia, but also these students are making meaningful contributions to their communities. Right. I mean, I feel that um, it was a citizen scientist is becoming more prominent. And also, you know, uh, genetics is rapidly evolving. So getting someone interested or learn about it earlier, I feel like gives them a leg up because five years ago, what I knew about genetics is starting to change drastically than it is now. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. 
And, you know, even unfortunately for better or worse, you know, now because of COVID, PCR testing is ingrained in our brains, right? Like the COVID PCR. And so, you know, students that do these types of, of experiments, they go, it's the same principle, the extraction, the amplification, the visualization. It's the same thing that we're doing in medical labs to diagnose, you know, disease. And so I think it, it becomes more relevant to them. You know, once you learn about DNA, it, you really view the world through a different lens. Even when you're walking, watching talk shows and they have those paternity DNA tests, right? Like, right. The students, <laughs> oh my gosh, this is what they're doing. So it kind of opens, opens the door in many ways. So what drove you to help develop this product? Yeah, so it was actually the Wabaki project was started, oh gosh, 15 years or so ago. And it, it began by a team, a large collaboration of scientists, high school teachers, and outreach specialists. And they pulled me in at the time to help with the curriculum development and really the conversion of those lab protocols into classroom-ready activities. So I became increasingly active over the years, and now I'm really fortunate to be able to lead the project um, in new directions. But I think, you know, what really drives me to sustain the project and, you know, keep active is, first of all, to give students an exposure to real world research early in life. Because I think career choice, you know, as you see by my like bumpy, windy path, right? Careers are really this accumulation of experiences. And so oftentimes early in life. So if we give them that exposure and that hands-on experience, they can hopefully decide, oh my gosh, I love molecular biology. I love bioinformatics or not. And that's equally valuable, right? So they they have that exposure. Uh, we're going to need more STEM careers. Like we need a larger STEM workforce. We really do at all levels, entry level to PhD. We need more. Um, it's a growing field. And so in this, through the Wolbachia project, those students are getting that exposure. But my second driver is really supporting our teachers. So I genuinely continue, they continue to be my heroes and they're the foundation of our future. Um, so I am privileged every day to work alongside them. And I love sharing the latest and greatest, what we're doing in the lab with them. Because through our collaboration, we're able to take everything we're doing right now in the lab on a daily basis and translate it and make it available to students so that they have similar experiences and it can help them in the future. So really, it's for the students and for the teachers. You know, it's great that we're getting so much information about Wolbachia. I'm driven by them. It's a really cool and honorable uh, way to get involved in this project. Yeah. And I'm seeing more projects, you know, citizen science is growing because science isn't just for those, you know, PhDs in the academic lab, right? Everybody can do science. I, you know, I worked with a citizen scientist a few years ago. He was this very successful businessman. He contacted me because he wanted his daughter to experience molecular biology. And so he set up a Wolbachia lab in his basement. So, you know, he and his daughter worked through the Wolbachia project. I think she had a good time. She went on to college. I don't think she's in science. But what's interesting is it reignited something in him. Mm -hmm. How the successful businessman enrolled in a graduate program, and he's now going back to study science. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, isn't it? It's amazing. It's amazing. You know, the Wolbachia project is for everyone. So has there been any interesting findings since the research has started and how students reacted being involved with this process? Yeah, we've had some really 
really fun student publications come out. More and more students are publishing. Most recently, um, we had a pair of students. They collected about 100 of the Brudex cicadas, and they surveyed the cicadas for, you know, they were lucky to be right place, right time, right? Because right. what, they come up about every 17 years or something like that, 13, 17? Something <laughs> but, like that, yeah. Yeah, so these cicadas come up, so they survey them for Wolbachia. Spoiler alert, no Wolbachia. <laughs> but, um, you know, that this is something that had been many, many, many years ago. Another teacher's class also saw this same thing. But these students published it. So now it is published. It's available online. So people, you know, future cicada researchers will be able to look back at this and see that, you know, at this time, the Brudex cicadas were not associated with Wolbachia. It's negative data, but negative data is good data. You know, that's still really interesting findings. We also, we have a database, the Wolbachia Project database. It was developed during COVID a few years ago, actually developed by someone that studied Wolbachia in high school, who is now a scientist, uh, Dr. Nick Negretti at Vanderbilt. He's now a scientist and he worked with us to create this database as a way to pay it forward because he attributes his experience studying Wolbachia with his interest in science. So really cool story. But now we have this database and thousands of students can contribute all of their Wolbachia data to this database. Um, and we're really growing this huge, huge accumulation of information, not only of Wolbachia frequency, but of arthropod diversity. And I say arthropod diversity because some of our students in Switzerland, I was looking at their entries. Oh my gosh, incredible data. You blast it using against the National Sequence Data Archive. You blast it. And some of these sequences aren't in NCBI. Which makes sense because they're in Switzerland. They're focused on probably an underrepresented populations of Palearctic species. Mm-hmm. These aren't represented in our databases. So these students are, are probably possibly for the first time sequencing these arthropods. Super, super cool stuff. So check out, you know, ch- check out our database or uh, some of the publications. It's really exciting what these teachers and students are able to do together. So are people able to access this database uh, if they're like doing their own research to do like comparative genomics? Yeah, absolutely. So everything that we do with the Wolbachia project is freely available from the very from day one. That was our goal. Everything's freely available. So if you go to WolbachiaProjectDB.org, you can actually blast sequences. Nick set up a local blast, or you can blast out to NCBI. You can also download all of the sequences. We ask students to upload both the raw sequencing chromatogram as well as the final DNA sequence. So they they even upload pictures of their gel. So you can assess, you know, how you can assess their results mm-hmm. and you can really follow their project the whole way and download all their raw data. So that's good for metagenomic analysis for further along the road. Yeah, it'll be as it grows. We're we're really excited about maybe seeing how we can actually use the data in the database. So has there been any hurdles starting this project or any that have popped up along the way? Well, I would say the biggest hurdle (laughs) because from day one, we wanted it to be free, right? So we do free teacher training. We give free reagents. So all those PCR primers and arthropod controls, all of that's free. We do free DNA sequencing. We've worked with industry partners to have free loaner equipment. But again, when you hear this, 
this stuff costs money. <laughs> so the, the biggest hurdle has been sustainability. You know, just keeping the project funded at times, you know, I volunteered to work on it because we are dedicated to keeping it going. But what's great is that it is is so successful. It's growing through word of mouth, but that requires more resources to be able to support all of these young scientists. And so we're just actively working to, to keep it going and keep it sustainable, but free. Everything's free. And even our curriculum is through Creative Commons, so the teachers can download it and and adopt it and modify it to fit their their classroom needs. And we really encourage that because we want to make it easy for everyone to get into molecular biology and biotechnology. Sounds like it makes it very appealing to schools in general. Yeah, it is. I I think it's appealing to them. Um, and what's really great is a lot of schools now are trying to build these biotechnology classrooms. But again, that's expensive. Right. So the Baki project is something they can take this curriculum to their school board or their PTO or their principal and say, you know, this is something that I'm going to do. My students can do real research. And oftentimes that that's kind of just the what they need to get the buy in from their school board to fund this establishment of a new biotechnology classroom. And then they can continue their biotechnology studies in many different areas. But sometimes you just need a place to start. So I think Wabaki projects are really good for that, too, as a way to help teachers build biotechnology courses. So what's the future for this project? Are there any other microbes that might be included or additional curriculum that might be added? Yeah, I you know, I've worked individually with teachers, um, like phage well primers, for example, um, that's something we would eventually like to add in. So not only are students looking at the arthropod and the Wabakia, but they can also look at the phage. However, I'm currently investing a lot of my time into a new project, which is will be a sister project under our Discover the Microbes Within umbrella. I can't really say what it is yet because I'm I want to make sure that it's feasible and I can get it to work because I want it to be easily implemented, like the Wabakia project, easily implemented. I think I'm pretty sure we can pull it off. So check back next year. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's going to be a new science, a new a new focus of microbes. Sounds really cool. <laughs> <laughs> so before we go, is there anyone you'd like to thank? Uh, yeah, I just love to thank every researcher and educator that's made the Wabahi Project what it is today. You know, there have been a lot of people involved from the founding scientist to the first time teacher implementing a new course. I'm so privileged to be able to work with them, but, you know, not to get too sentimental, but I really want to thank my husband and my partner, Seth Bordenstein. You know, he was the initial uh, founder of the Wabakia Project. And, you know, we met probably about 20 years ago at a science conference at a bus stop. And our very first conversation was him telling me all about the wonders of Wabakia, which I'd never heard of before. Somehow he convinced me somehow, I'm I'm still not sure how, <laughs> to get into Wolbachia research. And he really gave me the freedom to dig into phage genomics. I think it's probably paid off, but, you know, he he's given me a, a little bit of that freedom and really supported my passion for education and outreach and to be a mom. And so I think, you know, together, uh, we've been able to accomplish some really great things with the Wolbachia project. And I'm excited for our next project. Super excited. So I know you had mentioned it prior, but what are some resources people can use or find if they're interested in the project? 
Yeah. So our website is wolbachiaproject.org. That's W-O-L-B-A-C-H-I-A project.org. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, and if you want to learn more about just Wolbachia research in our lab, we're at bordensteinlab.com. Thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you. Well, Microbial Nation, that is our episode. I would like to thank Sarah again for coming on today. I highly recommend checking out the wobakiaproject.org and maybe check out some of their guides, getting started, or just to learn more about it. If you like our content and are looking for more, you can check out our website, mycorbigales.com, where you can listen to more episodes or check out our blog. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S dot com. We also have a Twitter account, at Microbigales, and an Instagram, which you can find by searching Microbigales. Until next time, everyone. Bye.